0: Hi, this is your host Pete Bloom. Welcome to American Heroes Network. Our core mission is serving the brave men and women who have sacrificed to ensure our freedom. You will hear true stories from those that have served, learn about veteran organizations and resources, and gain hope for your future knowing American Heroes Network, your community, and other veterans are here and at the ready to serve and help you and your family. We will talk about the hard topics like PTSD and TBI. You will also hear military history, inspirational stories, learn about networking with the community, and more. So come join us and be part of our family. Today's guest is an Army historian of the Vietnam War and the digital military historian at the U.S. Army Center of Military History. I would like to welcome Dr. Eric Villard. Eric, good afternoon, and how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great. Excited to be on this. We've been kind of talking and planning on this for a while, and I'm glad it all worked out. It's a beautiful day, and I'm excited to talk about history.
0: Eric, I wanted to start off today by telling you why I think this episode is so important. Jim, the president of American Heroes Network, and the rest of his team, including me, all feel as strongly as you do about preserving history. Jim says all the time that we're only like a generation away from forgetting our history, and he wants to make sure that doesn't happen. He was also a previous national historian for the Military Order of the Purple Heart, so you can see we all believe in the preservation of history, and we also really believe in your mission, and we wanted to be sure to share it with as many people as we possibly can. And I wanted you to know Jim was also in the Vietnam War, wounded twice, he received the Purple Heart, and he also fought in the 1968 Tet Offensive.
1: Yeah, and uh, Tet Offensive is probably my big specialty within the Vietnam War. I was actually born during the Tet Offensive, so I'm a Tet baby. And I don't remember the war, but in a strange way, I guess I feel a certain kinship with that particular moment in time.
0: That's really interesting. And that's actually where I kind of wanted to start. I was wondering if you would tell us, Eric, about your earlier years, you know, like where you grew up, what first made you interested in military history?
1: I was interested in military history, you know, history in general, but particularly military history from as young as I can remember. How does one get into these things? My route probably was Army soldiers. And I quickly graduated from the standard plastic little Green Army men because I realized even at an early age, those are kind of boring. So I started getting into some of the British manufacturers that were doing more historically accurate soldiers. And I was just really fascinated, particularly with, I think, you know, sort of 20th century military history. I love the vehicles and the aircraft. And as a young kid, I would spend my breaks and lunch in the library. I mean, I was an uber nerd that way, I guess. Everyone was outside playing and I was in there devouring history books. And I just was fascinated by the variety. You know, when you go through a book of 500 airplane pictures and you really obsess about why is this one different than that one? Why is it shaped this way? That sort of thing. So at an early age, there was that fascination and also just setting up with all my plastic soldiers and stuff and Lincoln Logs and Legos, anything else I had, creating these massive battles and tableaus. And I think there was just something about the figuring out why does one side win or another? Now, my dad was in the Air Force for about four or five years, the later part of the Vietnam War. He was a OBGYN doctor. So he went in through a special program. They needed doctors. And so he joined the Air Force and stayed stateside. So he never went overseas. But I do remember living on Travis Air Force Base in California and seeing the Thunderbirds and some of that kind of military equipment. So I think there was something about that, too, when I was young that made a big impression.
0: You know, When I was growing up, I similarly liked to read. I was reading all the time. But... Of course, you were reading stuff that had to do with military history. Myself, I was reading stuff uh, about medieval times and dragons and knights and all that kind of stuff. So, <laughs> Oh, well,
1: okay. The other thing I did in high school was play Dungeon Dragons all the time. So all right. I'm right there with you. And in fact, I mean, maybe we can talk about this a little later, but I had this theory about the Venn diagram of you know where you have those overlapping circles of interest And I tend to see a lot of things as being related. So my interest in Dungeon Dragons all the other type of games, the fact that I was the game master, the dungeon master, I usually ran the thing, fed very much into my burgeoning interest in military history and, and later on decision, you know, to become a professional because the type of preparation I was doing for a game was exactly the sort of thing that I do now, you know, obsessing over maps and doing the data and then what happens if the players decide to do this, you know. So it all fits together.
0: That's really awesome. Yeah, I just totally remember my dad. He was always like, why don't you go outside and play some football or something?
1: (laughs) Well, I did play soccer and I still do. But yes, by and large, these other obsessions kept me busy.
0: Another interesting thing is that you got the doctor in your title. Where does that come into play? When did you become a doctor and a doctor of what?
1: Well, I felt at a pretty early age that I wanted to do this professionally. Of course, when you're 11 or 12, it's not entirely clear what that means, but I thought that's what I wanted. And then as I get into high school and then go to undergraduate, I went to Occidental College in Los Angeles, and I was a history major, but also an English literature major, so I was a major. And I, at that point, knew enough and knew the path forward, said, yeah, I'm going to go on to graduate school because you need to get a PhD in history to, in most cases, to become a professional. So that meant after four years of undergraduate, I then did nine more years for the master's and PhD program at the University of Washington. So 1999, I graduate with a doctorate in history. Again, there's endless opportunities for confusion because usually when people hear you're a doctor, they assume you mean a medical physician, right? And my mom jokingly says, no, no, not the type of doctor that can help you. That's my dad. He's the other type of doctor. But yeah, generally speaking, you need to get a PhD to do most of the things, and it's not an easy road. I mean, you know, imagine, again, after four years of undergraduate, then you have to get accepted. And military history is not a particularly widespread discipline in academia, although it's incredibly popular with students. So the number of jobs for professional military historians is actually kind of shockingly small. I mean, I think there's maybe a few hundred, like really full-time. And most of those, of course, are in with the military services, probably the United States Joint Services. um, I'm just ballparking four or five hundred of all descriptions. But in academia, nowadays, you're looking at a few dozen. So there aren't that many positions and that's always at the back of your mind when you make the commitment for graduate school. There's no guarantee that you're getting a job. And I, in fact, have some good friends in grad school who I think have fantastic potential, but there isn't a job. But I figured I was going to make it happen somehow. And I got to say, things really fell my way. Just a bunch of events that turned out in my favor. I mean, you have to do the preparation. You know, I had done all the things I was supposed to do but there's always an element of luck. When I graduated and began looking for work, it just so happened that the U.S. Army Center of Military History was not only hiring, but was looking for a Vietnam War historian. And not only that, but was looking for a Vietnam War historian to write about the Tet Offensive. So bingo, you know, that doesn't always happen.
0: Yeah, well, we're certainly gonna get into all that. That has a lot to do with what we're talking about today for sure. And I just want to say, we can tell from the beginning, just what you said already, that you have just put in the time and dedication that it took to make all this happen. And it's certainly very amazing of everything that's come out of what you've done. And that's why I'm so excited to talk about it today. With all of this, I would say, what was it that made you focus so much interest specifically on the Vietnam War era? Was it because you were born during that time or was it something else?
1: I think in a way, I still remember in high school, I think it was probably my junior or senior year. I grew up in Northern California. We did this class trip to Sacramento, like a debate class type thing. And I participated in a debate on the Vietnam War. I think the proposition was the Vietnam War was an immoral war, Argue for and against. And I really, really enjoyed that experience. And I think that planted a seed in my mind. But I think I had already begun to gravitate toward the topic. And I think for a couple of reasons. One, there were people around who had lived through it. I mean, my parents lived through it. They were in the war, but they lived through that era. And there were tons and tons of veterans around that I could talk to. So there's that. There's also the complexity and the controversial nature of the war. I'm drawn to complexity and to gray areas. And of course, you know, everyone in the world loves Civil War and World War II. And, and I certainly do as well. But it kind of seemed like, do we need the 597th book on Pickett's Charge? It just seemed like it'd be not that it'd be entirely done to death, but eh, that ground had been covered. And it wasn't the same for Vietnam. There were, of course, for all the reasons I think most of us know, it was a controversial war. A lot of people preferred not to talk or think about it. And some of those who did talk or think about it were so passionate in their beliefs that there wasn't maybe so much of a discussion as a shouting match. So I saw an opportunity to wade into something really, really messy and maybe do some good. So I think there was that aspect. And then I think the third thing I would say is, and this is clearly true now, I mean, I understand this maybe more than I did at the time, but just the documentary body of evidence is so rich, particularly, you know, the images. I'm a visual person, so being able to see all these photos, I think, really put a hook in me. And so for all those reasons, it just, it seemed like that was going to be my thing.
0: This is kind of like a side topic to what you just talked about, but you mentioned this all starting in high school and from the thing that you went on. And it makes me think about high school today in history classes. And you were talking about education and teachers and how few that there are of what you do. So of all the history teachers and all the classes throughout the United States, it just makes me wonder, with the knowledge that you have, have you ever been invited to talk at maybe a history class? invited by a history teacher or a school. Oh,
1: sure. And I jump at the opportunity. I've done everything from give talks, at the National Archives Theater in D.C., to going to a high school class, to going to a senior center continuing education class, to giving museum tours. I mean, it doesn't really matter. I've done a wide variety of teaching. You know, I really enjoy it. That I remember in high school, there weren't any Vietnam War veterans who were teachers, but I do remember one of the teachers that influenced me a lot senior year, a guy named Lynn Brandkamp, and he'd been a medic in the Korean War. The Korean War is actually something I'm working on now, in addition to other things, but I'm building a Korean War commemoration site, and so it makes me think of Mr. Brandcamp. He was just a fantastic guy. He would talk about his experiences, and so I always admired him. He was great. He was like our social studies teacher. And also had some really fantastic English teachers, McPherson and others. So through high school, like I said, I don't recall that I actually knew a lot of Vietnam veterans. I'm sure I met him here and there. Most of the stories, though, I think I heard like family and other things was really about World War II which I love and it's kind of fascinating, but it wasn't until I got to college that I really was able to kind of hunker down and really get serious about the work. But teaching and just teachers who really care about what they do, that's something that's always been important to me. And that's one of the things I want to do now is try to use all the things I've learned to help them. And in fact, that is one of my really important kind of side projects. And there are already some of those things underway where I'm working with a high school teacher and giving them material and then saying, so how'd that work out? How can we tweak this? How can we craft the message or craft the approach? I mean, I was a good student, I think, and I was interested in class, but look, I get high school. There's a lot of distractions, you know, people are goofing off and girls and whatever else. And it's hard. It's really hard to keep people's attention. So I'm very cognizant of that. And I think over the years, I've hopefully developed some techniques that will help high school teachers.
0: Yeah, you know, I just think that education is so important. And it's been very interesting lately with everyone having to do school from home and the interaction of parents actually seeing their kids learning and doing things Mm -hmm. and assignments and stuff. I have a lot of respect for all the educators that are out there and for historians like you that are trying to make sure that we remember history and, you know, history and education, they kind of go hand in hand and it's just so critically important. So anything that you're doing that's going to tie into schools is just absolutely amazing because that's just going to help preserve things.
1: Yeah. And I think sometimes people, and and I get this, people will go, well, yeah, history is fun and great and everything, but what can you do with it? I mean, if you're not going to teach. And I think there's a lot of responses to the answer, but one of them that I think is kind of just a a universal is history is like a whetstone for your mind. It can really sharpen your judgment and analysis. It's the critical thinking skills. It's really like being a detective. It should be any surprise that most historians tend to have an interest in either crime drama or mysteries or things of that. I'm a massive British mystery buff. And I think there's something about the process of figuring it out. You come on a crime scene and there's blood on the walls and there's body and there's stuff all thrown around. So put in a Sherlock hat, what happened here, right? Those same critical analysis skills can be applied to everything in life. I mean, particularly, say, nowadays in thinking critically, deeply about news, information that we get in the public, What is a more credible source? What is a less credible source? What's due diligence just because someone hit forward, forward, forward on one weird trick to lose 10 pounds? You know, all those skills you learn in a historian serve you very well in all the aspects of life because it makes you really think about
0: I think that's really interesting because what you're saying there, it basically boils down to how history can really help people and how understanding history can really help veterans and others to solve problems. So that's pretty awesome. And it's another way of looking at it that I think most people probably don't think about.
1: Yeah, and it may not be obvious, but I also think that the world is a far more interesting place if you can see those echoes of time. Like I remember I was in Kandahar province in 2010 I was there on a historical mission, and I was up on the parapet of one of these American forward operating bases. And I was hanging out there with a guy I knew. He was the S-5. He's awesome. But we were looking out, you know, and this kind of sun's going down. I mean, it could be a really gorgeous place, but about, I don't know, a click or two away, there was this high mound that you could see in the distance, and there were a bunch of American strikers, these armored vehicles on the top. And he was talking about how they use that as an overlook position. And I'm looking at that, and I'm looking at that mound, and I'm going, hmm. And I thought about it, and then I pull out. I brought some information because I kind of knew where I was going. I'm like, holy cow. That is one of the forts that Alexander the Great's men built on their way to India. That's why there is a mound that overlooks. I mean, they're sitting on history. Wow. And, you know, blue is mine. It's a little thing. But suddenly, like your world shifts and you start looking for that around you like, whoa, there were people here before us. They were doing things and those echoes are all around. I think the world's more interesting when you can see that stuff.
0: Yeah, that is absolutely fascinating because it's like, well, what used to be under that parking lot? I mean, you just never know what in history was there.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
0: So, Eric, you've been involved as a historical consultant supporting so many efforts and there's some specifically that are related to Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to talk about, you had a couple, there was the TV documentary, Raw War, the lost mm-hmm. film of Dacto. Then another one is the New York historical society's exhibit on the Vietnam war. Mm-hmm. And then also you did another TV documentary, the Vietnam war. Can you kind of talk about each of these projects?
1: Yeah, yeah, Absolutely. So the first one, Rob War lost film, of Dacto, which is directed and produced by Frederick Lumere, great guy. That came out of the Facebook group that I started in 2014 called Vietnam War History Org, and I was looking for ways to connect with Vietnam veterans, but also families and scholars, and create a community where people could actually really share stories, information in a non-toxic environment. This would be a fantastic research tool for me because as important as the official records are, it's not the only source of information. And, you know, how great would it be to go, oh yeah, hey, John, you were there in Fantheit during Tet Offensive. What'd you see to be able to do that? So, as a result of that group, I got to know a lot of veterans. And my friend Bob is one of these guys that I met. He's no longer with us, and I miss him so much. And he was such a fantastic guy. He was a veteran of 3rd Battalion, 8th Infantry, 4th Infantry Division. And he was there in the Battle of Dacteau. And we'd been kicking around ideas for doing this kind of project, that kind of project. But one of his things, one of his real obsessions was he'd fought on this place called Hill 724, which is not the one people hear about most often, 875, where the 173rd went up the hill. But there were a lot of these battles. And he'd been there in this really nasty fight. And he knew that there had been a bunch of Signal Corps photographers on the hill during the battle taking film taking pictures, doing audio. And he had hooked up with these guys in the 221st Signal Company and found the audio of the battle. Wow. But it took him a while. Like, where's, there's got to be film. We know there's got to be, and they found the film at the National Archives. So having these two things, I mean, you rarely find that in the Vietnam War, where he's actually narrating the battle as it's going on. So having done that, this whole project came together, and Bob and myself and a couple of these photographers got together with Frederick Lumière and helped create this show, which I am so proud of. I'm biased, but I think it's really first-rate stuff. And again, it's so unusual to have that level of immediate presence and detail. It'll raise the hackles on your arms, I guarantee you. So it was a great experience and really you know, made me want to do more And as my Facebook group grew, and I got really active in other social media, people started hearing about me. So it was actually someone who had heard that I knew something about the Battle of Dacto. They got in touch with the New York Historical Society, who were putting on a show. And so Marcy Reeven the person who produced the show called me one day and said, hey, could you maybe help me out with some info on Dacto? And so we started talking, and then I pretty soon realized that, you know, they were doing this really big show. And particularly, like, they wanted to create this massive wall mural, hand-drawn wall mural showing, like, sort of the whole country and what was going on. And I said, you know, I do more than Dacto. Maybe I can help you. And from there, I became a consultant and had a fantastic time, got up to New York City three or four times, worked with them, fantastic artists, just great people up there. And so they put the show on and then they took the show on the road. I think it's still on the road somewhere, but, you know, amazing experience. And it was partly through that because New York Historical Society had been talking with Ken Burns and Lynn Novick who were then in the later stages of their Vietnam War documentary, and they'd agreed to share some video footage and stuff. So I got hooked up with Burns and Novick and said, hey, maybe I can help you in some areas that I think you're going to need help on. Because they had already had a great panel of historians and some friends of mine, like Greg Daddis and stuff, who had helped out with the script and everything. So I felt comfortable about that. But having been in this game for a while, releasing a film like that, And engaging with the public at all the different, from the far left to the far right, it can be very challenging. Things very quickly can turn into a a circular firing squad. And I didn't want that to happen. So I tried to use whatever influence I had. And again, I have friends on the left and the right and the center and whatever. And I think people know I'm a square shooter to kind of reach out to these folks and say, okay, look, we're all going to have reactions to the show. And I'm not saying you're going to love it or hate it or anything else. Just reserve judgment until you've seen it. And then when we have seen it, let's just figure out some ways that we can have a discussion about it. So that was an area where I tried to help. out. I also helped out with particularly uh, some of the map stuff because I have gotten super into geospatial information systems and mapping and stuff. And so I was able to also give them help when they were creating the graphics for like dacto like where the unit should be and how things are where they come from this direction or that direction stuff like that so again a great experience went to some of the premieres um, got to know lynn who's credible sarah botstein some of the others who worked there so that was just a fabulous experience and i've got other projects Uh, i got five or six other irons in the fire so yeah it just kind of builds
0: It's really amazing how community is and how one thing can lead to another thing because you just said how all these things were sort of tied together. And it's very, very interesting because sometimes you might think like, oh, well, you know, this individually happened over here and that was a a total, another random thing that happened over there. But no, in the circumstances, each one of these was like a link in a chain.
1: This is my advice. I mean, particularly anyone who's going into history, but I think maybe... It's more general than that, even. You know, some of these cliches are they're just they're so true. It is who you know. And I don't mean that in a kind of network trying to climb on top of the next guy and crawl your way to the top, but I mean it's about relationships. And you meet someone, you work with them, maybe you do them a favor and don't expect anything back. And maybe that's all that happens, and that's the reason enough for doing it. But maybe that person calls you up in a month and says, Hey. You know, I heard about this thing, this opportunity. You'd be great for, and it builds from there. And so, so many of the things that have come my way have been because of that process. So, like for example, particularly through the Vietnam War community, I think you really need to have street cred. Okay, and I don't mean that in the sense of you've got to have you know, necessarily been there. Or, you know, been in the military. But I think you have to show that you're sincerely interested in them, their stories, that you work to help the families, the veterans. And that makes all the difference because these guys and women have a real sharp BS detector. So usually when the first time you meet them, there's this little dance that happens in the first couple minutes, right? Where they're just kind of testing you and they'll throw out a a phrase or a place to see if you know what you're talking about. And I got to say, I'm always delighted. Sometimes I'll meet someone in the, in the grocery store and I'll see his has a Vietnam veteran hat and I'll see like 25th Infantry Division. It says, you know, 67, 68. And I'll say, hey, you know, hey, sir, hey, thank you for your service. I really appreciate what you've done. I studied the Vietnam War. So were you based at Coochie or Dao Chiang? And, you know, their phases is <laughs> You know what I'm talking about? And, you know, boom, you're off to the races. And I think, like I said, that has a carryover effect because, you know, people will say, yeah, this person, he's legit. And then that leads to introduction. So, for example, I think that was a big help in me um, getting in touch with and now becoming friends with Chuck Hagel, the honorable former Senator Nebraska and Secretary of Defense. But a Vietnam veteran who was in the Tet Offensive, uh, a Vietnam veteran who, in fact, served with his brother. Wow, The only two brothers like that in the whole war, but yeah, just a fantastic guy. And I think maybe heard, you know, some of the things I'd done. And so when I called him up and said, sir, you know, I'd love to have you at my book launch, we said, yes. And now we've got some other projects we're working on coming up, which are very exciting. But, you know, that gives you that kind of opportunity. So I think, again, it's advice to anybody. Always look for volunteer opportunities. Always try to help people. When you meet someone... You have in your mind, like, what am I bringing? What am I offering? I'm not just asking. I'm not saying, hey, what can you do for me? Figure out, you know, what you can do for them. Then amazing things can happen.
0: I really love that. The message is do what you can to contribute to society. And, yeah. and that's what it boils down to. And that is so important. You know, in the world today, oftentimes I feel like that there's a more of a sense of entitlement. And I like to see that change in, right. in, into, yeah. you know, what can I do to contribute to the world today?
1: Yeah. And just real quickly, too, this is another thing that. One reason I'm so endeared to the Vietnam War community is as I started to really study it, one of the things that I noticed was that I felt it was being underserved. And I mean, yes, we know about Vietnam veterans, by and large, not getting a great reception when they came home. All that's absolutely true. But I mean, almost more in the sense of, I mean, even now, you know, even when those attitudes have gotten a lot better, so many Vietnam veterans and family members, they're still like, what in the heck happened? I mean, I was there, but what was that about? Like, I, I mean, I remember going up down this hill. What were we doing and, you know, not having access to the kind of information that helped answer those questions? And like in my Facebook group now, I mean, this happens quite a bit. Like a person, you know, a younger person will get in there and say, hey, here's my dad was in Vietnam and never really talked about it. And he's gone now. And all I have are these couple of photos. So, we look at the photos, us and the 35,000 other people in the group, and we put on our Sherlock hats, and we start going, okay, look at the background, look for insignia, look for, and very often, you know, our two were like, okay, he was in Alpha Company, 3rd Battalion, 21st Infantry, and this is a need that still needs to be met. I'm doing what I can, certainly, and, you know, it keeps me up at night because we're losing so many Vietnam veterans, but just giving them the information to answer the questions that they have had for 50 years
0: yeah i mean that, that's really powerful i mean it's even more so and you're right i mean it's like generation after generation we lose more people and everyone who lived that history at one point or another is gone and we need to capture what we can and mm-hmm. communicate it while we can
1: yeah
0: you mentioned that whole geospatial thing and i really think that that's kind of cool can you mention or talk about your google yeah. earth project
1: You know, I started working at Center of Military History in in 2000, and I was working on this book, which became Staying the Course, which is about a year, the sort of the midpoint year in Vietnam, including the Tet Offensive and other things. And as years went on doing the research and stuff, I became very frustrated because it seemed like I was sort of stuck in, you know, the 60s in the ways that I was working. So I would have drawers and cabinets and folders, as far as the can see, filled with all the papers and all the abstraction. And again, we're talking hundreds and hundreds of thousands of pages. And and I'm thinking, okay, now I'm supposed to make sense of not just one battle that had 10,000 people, but a hundred of them over a year, keep this all straight and say something interesting and insightful. I mean, how can you do this? you know, it's like looking at the Sistine Chapel through a straw, right? You just <laughs> see a little part of it, right? And you got to, okay, I remember that part and then I got to, it drove me nuts. So I started thinking, okay, well, let's apply my other passions. Like I said, I was a DD guy from way back. I was also a computer guy. Loved computer games, you know, just was very tech savvy, I guess you could say. And I thought, well, let's try to apply some of those methods. So as the technology began to really mature after the iPhone, the iPads, and these other things, I thought, okay, we've kind of arrived. We're sort of at a place where we can do some of this stuff. So when I started playing around Google Earth, that was just like such a revelation. In fact, I saw when I was in Kandahar, Afghanistan in 2010, I saw their intelligence section using Google Earth for their operational planning, and that just blew me away. And so when I came back, I started playing around with it, and then it just took off from there. So what I started doing very quickly was taking the contemporary military maps. So like in South Vietnam, there's about 330 maps, 1 to 50,000 scale, that cover the whole country. Now, previous historians at Center Military History would write, 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 and then go to the drawer every once in a while and pull out a paper map, look at it, put a little sticky on it, right? Because they got to remember that something happened there. And I thought, that's nuts. So I took these 330 maps, enhanced them with Photoshop. So the colors popped and you could see where the roads were and everything else. And then I skinned them on Google Earth. So now when you're looking at southern part of Vietnam, you're looking at South Vietnam, circa 1968. So now I can go from 30,000 feet, look at the whole country and look at the strategic level, or I can zoom down to an individual hamlet and see the individual houses. And having that as a basis, then all the other maps that exist, I can now incorporate them and put them as overlays on top of that. So there's an operational map of a Jeb Stewart, let's say, that's in an after-action report. Lift that up, Photoshop it, put it on top, that it rides on top of the Photoshop one to 50 maps. And then now you can see the arrows where the units are moving. And then I created custom icons to show where the units actually were. And pretty soon, it increased my understanding of the conflict exponentially as an understatement. And I use it now for a lot of other techniques. It's had other secondary benefits. It's so much easier to explain something to someone when you can pull this thing up and show them in 3D. And like in my Facebook group, someone says, well, you know, my dad served in this place called whatever, K. Boom, it can bring that up, say, here it is. You know, here it is north of Saigon. Here's the rubber plantations. And suddenly, oh, it's an actual place. And it sticks in their head because I'm a gamer, you know, Grand Theft Auto. You start playing Grand Theft Auto, like GTA 5, right? You start driving around town. After a while, you can navigate that whole island, that whole city in your head, like you would like you're driving around your own. Oh, I'll take a left here, I'll go over that hill. You see things in a three-dimensional way. This is the same concept. By seeing this in my head for the Vietnam War or any other thing, suddenly I can summon the images, the relationships, I understand, oh, okay. So the report didn't mention this, but this other thing that happened is just the valley right over that one. So you start to see the connections that weren't obvious from the text. So again, it's a video game thing. To carry over just how my mind works, I think a lot of younger people. I also think it's probably why it's been kind of a hard sell with some of the people in my field because that's just not what they're used to. And again, no criticism of them. It's just that's not how their brain works. But for me to be able to work like that, it's very powerful. And like I said, I use it everything from making videos. There's a flight simulator built in. So I've actually flown bombing rides within Google Earth. So you can say, okay, so they're coming in at this angle on that hill, and you can show it. So it gives you the ability to take massive information and put into a heads-up display, like a modern fighter pilot cockpit. And I just find that incredibly helpful and I think it's the future.
0: Eric, this just sounds so fascinating. This is something that I could spend, you know, hours looking at. Is it something we can do now? Is it available to us? Yeah,
1: actually, I have released pieces of my Vietnam system. I'm actually working on getting it to the point where it's kind of like a 0.9 beta, you know, so enough of the whole thing is complete that I can kind of put it out there and really have people monkey around with it. But that is coming very soon. And it would be such a delight for me for people to start using this because I think this gives you the ability to really be talking on the same page. And among other things, like a project I'm very excited about now is I've used this Google Earth system to help look for missing in action. Some of the American missing in action. So by this system, again, cross-referencing and overlays of other types of information, comparing it to Viet Cong or NBA sources, suddenly you can maybe come up with some different conclusions. Like I came up with an analysis where I think I know the location of 42 uh, North Vietnamese soldiers who were killed at the Battle of Valmoral. This is in middle of 1968. It was an Australian fight. And one of the Australian veterans, Byron Cleaver, who was there, just couldn't really shake this. And so later in his life, he went back to Vietnam four times to look for what was a bomb crater where these Northeast soldiers had been buried, you know, to help find them and, you know, to give their families a sense of closure. He didn't find them. I think because he obviously wasn't looking in the right place. And I have an analysis where I think I knew exactly where they are. And I've actually shared that with the Vietnamese. And now there's a project, and I don't want to get too much ahead of myself, but there is a project that we are working on that potentially could not only help the Americans look for some of the missing we have, but also, again, you know, pinpoint location of those who were killed as a way of helping their families, but also helping the Vietnamese, because they have well over 200,000 missing in action from the war. And, you know, whatever you want to say about geopolitics and the relative merits of different political systems, and I get that, but when it comes down to it, most of these were just young guys on both sides, and their families loved them. And I don't know, I think if we can help bind those wounds and bring some closure, that's got to be a good thing. So this, you know, Google Earth system is part of potentially a way to begin working on that. I hope so. I really hope so.
0: Wow, I can't even hardly believe that. I mean, it's because of your love and passion for history that this is happening, and I'm really looking forward to seeing this come full circle here. That's incredible. So another thing, Eric, was you mentioned a book, and Mm -hmm. I actually know that you've written two of them. I see there was the uh, 1968 Tet Offensive Battles of Quang Tri-City and Hue, and then the other one, Staying the Course. October 1967 to September 1968, U.S. Army Combat Operations in the Vietnam War. Would you like to touch on both of those books?
1: Yeah. The first one was actually a monograph. So it was essentially a chapter from what became Staying the Course that we released early just as a standalone piece, kind of uh, take a part of what we're working on, put it out there, get some interest, get some feedback. But the Staying the Course book, which is the third volume in what will be a five-part official history of the U.S. Army in the Vietnam War. Uh, again, covers October 67 to September 68. So that is the period, you know, leading up to what becomes the Tet Offensive. And then the second and third waves of the enemy's offensive. And it's the high point in the fighting. It is the time where the ferocity of the war, the casualties were unmatched. So it ended up being six hundred and eighty pages, plus bibliography and footnotes. we were testing the limits of binding technology in that one, you know, but even six hundred and eighty pages, and it sounds like a lot, but you know there's so much you can talk about, so that's, of course, just one of the great challenges is taking this millions of pages of information and then weaving out of that a coherent narrative that is designed for the average reader. I mean, it is not a jargon filled army-only, lessons-learned type. This is for anyone who's interested in the Vietnam War. And for all the research you know, and the effort I put into it, again, there's a whole team at CMH that makes these books possible. These are not individual efforts. The writers all have uh, mentors or supervisors or branch chiefs that help with the editing process, the writing process various layers of revision and editorial boards and checking footnotes and, you know, it gets production. You've got our great people that actually make the book an actual book, you know, put it together with all the, the formatting and put in the photos and everything that goes into it. And it's a very complicated process. So it's a team effort. And I'm just really pleased at how it turned out, because I think it ended up being, hopefully, a very enjoyable read. But also, there was a lot of new insights and revelations. So it isn't just the same old thing hashed over and over. I mean, I worked very hard, and partly because of my you know, Google Earth system and other things, I believe I came to a number of conclusions, which, um, in some cases, really kind of overturn whatever the accepted narrative is. It's very rewarding when that happens. But again, the Vietnam veterans, when they read the book, it's just such a delight because they want their stories told. And even if their particular unit isn't in there all the time, just the fact that the Army has gone to the effort to do this, I think means a lot. And you can order the book through the government printing office. You get the physical copy, which again is fantastic. But you can also download it for free as a PDF. So if you go to www.history.army.mil, We've got a whole massive online bookshelf and it's all free. If you want to get the PDFs, it's all free. You know, we've got others, books in the Vietnam War series, logistics and engineers, Mac V and advisory volume. We've got a few more books still coming out. We've got Dr. Andy Bertles working on the middle advisory, Joel Myerson and uh, Mark Bradley working on logistics. So we have a couple more still coming. I'm working on the 68 to 69 volume right now. So I'm working on the fourth volume, you know, where Vietnamization begins. And then we'll have someone uh, do the fifth one. So we take a lot of time and care. We don't crank these out every two or three years. And I don't mean any disrespect. You know, there's a lot of very talented authors out there who can turn out good, enjoyable books every few years. But this is a whole nother standard. We go to such tremendous efforts to get this right. And writing on top of those 688 pages is, again, a mountain of information evidence that we continue to use as CMH and for the Army. So that's why it takes us a while, because this is the official history and we want to make sure we get it as right as we can.
0: Right, exactly. I mean, it's history. It's facts. It's not just one person's story. And like you said, all those individual stories are important. Those people expressing right. their thoughts and feelings of when they were over there, but you are definitely making and creating what is going to be remembered always as part of our history. So that's really awesome. To kind of round this out, you know, we've talked a lot about the different stuff that you've done, you know, throughout the past. And I'd really like to just talk about your current job with the Army, if you wouldn't mind saying like what you do, how do you enjoy it? And then talk about those websites that you're currently producing for each of the different like World War One, World War Two, Vietnam, et cetera.
1: Yeah. So it was in 2010 when I went to Afghanistan. I was embedded with the striker brigade and then came back. That was a life-changing experience for me. To this day, I mean, probably one of the single most important things I ever did, because I mean, you're out there in the field, you're seeing soldiers dealing with the stress and the danger, and you kind of understand why you do what you do. Why we do what we do as historians, right, is to tell their story. So when I came back, I made a resolution that I was going to try to be the kind of historian that I wanted to be, right? Whatever preconceived notion of what a historian is or was that I had, I just like no, I'm going to do it the way that makes sense to me. So I decided that I wanted to be something called a digital military historian, which didn't exist. I mean, digital history, it was kind of an emerging field and some people are doing this or that part of it, but my conception of the digital military historian was much broader. And so I began working towards that goal and spent, I don't know, I mean, thousands of hours learning all the techniques because what I call a digital historian is someone who does all the regular history things, but also is a graphic designer, does Photoshop, understands geospatial information systems and cartography, someone who does audio and visual production, someone who is very active and savvy with social media, uh, someone who does 3D design like SketchUp or modeling things, all those areas, be able to do all those things. So that I spent an incredible amount of time learning those skills. I mean, I've never had a formal computer class in my life. But, you know, the internet's a wonderful thing. You can pick this stuff up. So working towards that goal, when we got a new executive director about four or five years ago, Mr. Charles Bowery Jr., I, you know, expressed my very strong desire to be this thing. And we shared the same vision. I mean, he's an extraordinary leader. Um, he's going to think I'm just saying this because we're on a podcast, but it's true. <laughs> I mean, CMH has, I think you know, most objective people would say, has just gone skyrocketing in terms of influence and innovation. And so he helped create a position in the government called Digital Military Strength. So that is what I am now. And in that role, I do things like produce these commemorative subsites. So on the CMH website, I create these areas, started with World War I. We made a big deal out of that because the modern army was formed during World War I. So I ended up, I designed a template with Dreamweaver. So I used a web design program and created a template that you could see on a computer, but also using a tablet, all that other stuff. And then did the research, created the custom backgrounds, you know, with Photoshop. Just did all the production to create a 32 chapter experience that takes you from 1903 through 1923. And I hope that people really enjoy it because it's a mix of photos that I've enhanced. And that's kind of become one of the things I guess maybe I'm known for is all these photos I fix up and and post. But all the maps I found, selecting interesting original documents. We've got our narratives, our campaign series, mixing in videos. It's just, there's a smorgasbord. After that, I created two World War II websites. Pacific, Asia, and Europe, Mediterranean. To be started in the middle, I kind of started early 44. And when I finish my Vietnam book, I'll double back and finish it up. But uh, also working on a Vietnam one, and soon we will have a five-chapter Korean War site. Eventually, we'll have 12 of these covering the entire span of Army history. I just think that they're going to be a delight to even the average person because just the mix of elements— all the great museum stuff we have. I mean, the National Museum of the United States Army is opening, well, next month, I guess. And the stuff we have will blow people's minds and the artwork and all the museums we have around the country. So this is a way to bring this all together. That's a lot of what I do as a digital historian is kind of be this executive producer to create all the stuff. And it's great because I don't have to say, okay, Joe, you do that and Sarah, you do that. I just do it. I can do it all and get it out there. So if people do check out, for example, you know, my Twitter feed or anything else, the thing that they're probably going to see you know, all of these photos that I get from the National Archives. You know, I take out the dings and scratches, adjust the contrast, do a lot of shading so that they become alive. And honestly, that's a thing that people think of digital military story, and probably it's the photos that I'm putting out. Because it's just, again, it's just another way of engaging with the audience. And even though I'm writing this Vietnam book, that's my main project. In the evenings, on the weekends, while I'm watching TV, I'm working on those photos. You know, I'm helping people in my Facebook group. As I said in another article, I sort of think of the digital historian as a Swiss army knife. Whatever you need, hopefully I've got the skills to do it.
0: It really does sound like a Swiss army knife to me. I mean, you do a little bit of everything and it's just amazing everything that you can accomplish. And you're so right about the enhanced pictures and bringing them alive because it's that visual impact that is the memory that sticks in someone's mind the longest.
1: And we talked about the high school, right? That was one of my sort of realizations is how are you going to make a bunch of squirmy 10th graders pay attention? Well, you can't just yammer on at them. But, boom, you throw up an image, a really, you know, sharp image of a couple of just dirty, dog-tired soldiers coming back after patrol, and then you know, it goes quiet. And they're looking at those faces. They're looking at the equipment, and they're like, wow, that guy looks younger than me. You know, and suddenly, you've got something. This is a visual age. You know, YouTube, and why not work with it, right?
0: So I'd really kind of be interested on hearing what you talked about towards the beginning where you said you had a theory on Dungeons and Dragons.
1: Yes. I've been thinking about doing one of these little pieces and putting it on Twitter. But So this will be my first. You're getting my world premiere (laughs) of the theory. Okay. You know, my theory is a really good dungeon master is excellent training for being a historian because being a good dungeon master means you really have to get in the source material. You need to understand not just the sort of adventure, it's likely your group, your players are going to go on, but all the things that they could do that you're not anticipating. So you need to know that world and the motivations and all the stuff in it. So I, no kidding, would probably spend five or 10 hours preparing for every hour that we play. Second thing is you got to love maps. Have to love maps. And I did and I do. And just understanding worlds and just being able to sort of place things, whether it's a real world or a mythical world, it's really important. I also think that it's great training because as a dungeon master, you're not just the rules keeper, you're driving the story. You've got to do the different voices. You've got to keep them entertained. You've got to throw in the humor. You have to be like a great teacher. You're the glue. And so I think, in, in YC historians, I'm, I see them as public people, you know, who can hold interest of an audience. So I think that's excellent training. Being that, I also think that most people, like you know, that I knew myself included, we say you know we play Dungeons and Dragons, but D and D is just shorthand for all the role-playing games. So we played Wild West and science fiction role-playing games, and James Bond role, and Super Hill, and all those other types. So I think there's something about that, because it almost is like by learning these different games, and they all have their own mechanics, right, and their own rule sets. It's kind of like in the history discipline, you know, the Vietnam War is kind of a specific field with its own thing. But you get into French Revolution, it's, that's kind of got its own thing. And that's sort of like switching between a superhero game to D&D. And to be able to do that, I think it puts you in good stead because you, you can sort of really understand the mechanics at a deeper level. And I think that's important. I also think that the preparation of a dungeon master is you have to love it. If you're not having fun, I mean, if you're not into it, the players are not going to be in it. It's going to be real clear, right? It, it's a drag when, you know, somebody's, oh, okay, I'll be the D, you know. No, you don't mean, I'll be the DM you want to be. That's the thing you got to do. And if you really enjoy it, then I think it comes across. And, you know, I also think that where I was growing up, even though we were still doing tabletop, everything else, you know, the computer world was beginning to get a hold of this. So there's a natural kind of, okay, there's the type of game where you sit around the table and you roll dice and you have papers, but then you go and you play Baldur's Gate on your computer or you prepare for your paper game on your computer. So this is sort of the moving between worlds and being comfortable with the different types of technology and also being comfortable in person and being able to just pick and choose what works best also seems to me like it's excellent preparation for being a historian.
0: Eric, I absolutely love that. And I'm going to tell you why, because when either it's a young kid that might be playing Dungeons and Dragons who doesn't know what they want to be when they grow up, or whether it's a 20-year veteran, you know, somebody who served 20 years in the military, and now they're going to get out, and they did artillery, and there's not a job in the outside world for artillery. So now mm. they got to decide what they want to do when they grow up. Yeah. They can reflect back on, did they like Dungeons & Dragons? So what we learned here is that if you have this in your background and you love it and, and you enjoy it, Instead of wondering what you want to be when you grow up, you might want to consider the profession of being a historian, which is amazing.
1: Yeah. Or even if you're not a professional, quote-unquote, historian, just having that be a part of your life in some way. And there are a lot of fantastic amateur, I and mean, when I say amateur in the sense of that's not their full-time job, but they're really, really knowledgeable. And maybe, you know, these folks who are in the military, they're, some guy who knows all about helmet liners in World War II. You know, all these other areas and I draw upon their expertise, it's a big community and it shades into gaming and it shades into reenactors, depending on which direction you go. So when you get into the sort of history world, you can end up having a lot of choices for social interaction. That could be very gratifying. So even though you're not, you know, earning a paycheck being a historian, genealogy, of course, is so massive. Genealogy is a type of history, really, you know, investigate your family, ask questions. It's the same type of methods and practice. And so, you know, maybe take that route. Just a little bit of that, I think, can end up being rewarding. But again, whenever I go a National Archives, it seems like I run into someone with such an interesting story. Just, you know, of course, before COVID, but four or five months ago, happened to me in the image room and met this just delightful couple who were originally from Taiwan. He was researching his father, who was a Chinese pilot. Who trained in the United States, who's ever heard of that, right? So I was giving him an idea, but he just to have you know, is a great conversation about, and he's showing me the research he had, so I learned something that I didn't know, and that's the great thing about it. When you kind of get into that world, you know, people are so passionate, and they're I think generally, you know, willing to, to share what they you know. I mean, I'm sure some people have had the experience where they get dragged off to some museum or Civil War battlefield, and they're like, oh, I can't believe, you know, well. Okay, just find the angle that appeals to you. What did they eat during the Civil War? I know some folks who were, like, obsessed about, you know, making biscuits a certain way and, you know, dry jerky the way they used to do it And So it doesn't have to be a war thing, but it's some angle, you know, something that, music, whatever. The thing may be, there's always something there for you, I think
0: so true. There's so many aspects and every different thing that can be researched when it comes to history. And one of the very recent episodes that I just did was on actually military history and it had to do with the army too. So Mm -hmm. you might find that one interesting. Absolutely. So Eric, I think the last thing that I'd like to ask is our audience is obviously veterans transitioning military, their families. What message would you like to give to them today, you know, being able to more or less talk to them directly?
1: I think just you know tell everyone that speaking if I can on behalf of the Army History Community the curators the uh, historians the archivists all the other people support staff who work in our organization we're not numerous but we are incredibly dedicated and we and we do this because we're supporting the soldiers supporting their families We all believe in that mission and we are doing everything in our power to try to reach folks. And as our executive director, Mr. Bowery says, you know, operationalize history, make it relevant, make it relevant to the army, to soldiers now, to veterans, find ways to bring value. So we encourage people to visit our site and look at my social media things, but just get involved, write us, write me spread the word about what we do because as more people know about center military history and all the other stuff that we're doing, the new national museum, the army, I mean, this is for them. We are public servants. We are doing this on their behalf. And if we can reach more people, we want to do that. And so just check us out, tell your friends, ask questions that you might have, and let us know how we can help you.
0: Excellent. That's outstanding. I think that everything that you're doing is just so amazing. I know I'm going to be spending a lot of time looking at a lot of these things that we talked about. They're absolutely fascinating. They're historical, they're accurate, and really gives you a sense of what people have lived through, what their lives Mm -hmm. were like. And it touches people's hearts when they see some of these kind of things. Honestly, I would love to see you be able to do something like this for each branch of the service. I mean, I was in the Navy and in the Marines. Yeah. You're doing this for the Army, but man. Well,
1: um, in a way, like, for example, you know, with my Vietnam War group, you know, Vietnam War History Org on Facebook, we do, we cover the whole thing and I cover the whole thing. I'm not just Army. I mean, I'm doing all the American branch, including Coast Guard and they, yes, Coast Guard was there, but also the Australians, New Zealanders, Thais, South Koreans, Philippines, all the South Vietnamese, but people on both sides, Laos and Cambodians, Thai, you know, Everyone. We really try to uh, spread our arms wide and we have a, a really fantastic and diverse membership. So I do try to practice jointness, bleed purple. And uh, even on my social media, even though I predominantly do Army, because the things that I put out on social media, you know, I do this stuff on my own time, but then I ended up, you know, using it on our subsites or for other stuff. Like last month or two, I started making these COVID posters. So, you know, the like the World War One World War II propaganda posters that you've seen? So, I take those and I enhance them with Photoshop, you know, kind of bring it back to life with the colors. And then I modify them. So, like, example, you know, Uncle Sam wants you. So, you have Uncle Sam with an N95 mask saying, Uncle Sam wants you to observe social distancing and stay at home. So, awesome. I have created, like, I don't know, 20 or 24 of these so far. Again, just sort of doing this to amuse myself, but now um, they're getting used. And our higher headquarters, Tradoc, is distributing them. And I had a NATO officer in Lithuania write me on LinkedIn. So, wow, I love that one particular thing. Could we use that in our mess room? I'm like, yeah, absolutely. You know, so like I said, it's just always looking for ways to reach out and make a difference with people. And so you just try stuff. You know, some of it's maybe silly, and some of it's serious. But yeah, you know, if it resonates, if it's helping our military, I'd be super happy to work with the other service branches. I know people there. I mean, there's some really first rate folks in all the service branch histories. But um, right now, there's just one digital military historian. I hope that we start developing a program. It sounds like we will. CMH is actually working on an internship in a program so that we can train some junior historians in the sort of things I do. And then hopefully that'll just start to percolate out.
0: Well, Eric, I want to say thank you so much for coming on today. You're absolutely a fascinating person and everything that you're doing is incredible. I think people are going to hear this and love to go check out all these different things that you've been working on. And the word will obviously get out there and spread more because as you said, the yeah. more people that know about it, the more people find out.
1: I just be glad. I mean, I'm not making a dime off of any of this. The government pays my salary. So all the stuff that I do, I do for free, I've never taken any money. And sometimes people will say, oh, how much do you want for that image or whatever? And i like, no, that's free. Everything I do, and because this is public domain stuff, right? This is free. So anything that I put out there that is in the public domain, that's free. Look, I got everything that I ever wanted. I get to do my hobby and get paid for it. So I'm really not sweating making cash on the side. That's not my focus, so um, whatever it is, just tell people, spread the word. the more folks know, it's just getting the message out.
0: Well, it sounds like you have got the best job ever. Thank you again and God bless you.
1: You too. Thank you.
0: Hope you've enjoyed this episode. Be sure to keep coming back each week for more great episodes. If you want to talk about something you learned today, if you have questions, or if you would like to be a guest on our podcast, go to Americanheroesnetwork.com and click on contact us.